if you are out there thinking about starting a business, thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, thinking about doing it your way, and you can do that without a whole lot of financial risk, you should probably listen to that sooner. You know, there's a there's a saying in management that I also strongly believe in, that if, if you have an employee and in your gut, you know they're not working out, the number one best thing to do is to rip that bandaid off and to basically move on from them. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey there, leaders, and welcome back to another episode of Leaders of B2B. Super excited today to have Tom Elliott from Left Hook on the show. Tom, welcome. Uh, Happy to have you on the show today. Hey, thanks, Jake. Great. So uh, super excited to dive into your backstory and just what you're doing and what you've built up and everything. But, um, you know, for anyone in the audience who doesn't know who you are, what Left Hook does, can you give us the quick 90 second overview? Yeah. So I'm Tom Elliott. I'm one of the co-founders of Left Hook. After a couple of different journey points, we, we are now a company based in New Hampshire that works for ISVs or SaaS companies. And we basically help them launch the best direct or universal integrations they can. We also work on uh, other integration technologies on behalf of these ISVs, uh, but uh, that's our, our niche within the niche within the niche. We're an integration company that's focused on ISVs. That's amazing. And so I want to get kind of make sure we're just like fully clear. So exactly when you talk about that, uh, you know, for a tech company, like can you maybe describe exactly who, like wh- who are the types of customers that you guys are working with and what are the types of integrations you're building? Sure. Well, the best way I can describe it is this. So for many years, people use software and when they needed to bring data in and out of that software from another application, really the only solution was to find a developer to read the the documentation and build some sort of custom bridge or you can think of them as pipes or wiring between two different systems. And that was a very developer heavy, expensive, often a custom one-off experience. Uh, which isn't very satisfying if you're trying to go fast, and particularly if you're an SMB. It's a multi-hundred billion dollar business every year to do that kind of stuff. But over time, different technologists started to see common use patterns and and different ways that that process could be made self-serve or or self-manageable. And that really brought about the rise of something that Gartner describes as the citizen integrator. And that's the idea that uh, you know a smart person who understands the software, who understands the automate uh, the uh, you know sort of what they need, should be able to consume an API or, or set up a data flow without ever touching a line of code. But what that does is it shifts a lot of effort and responsibility onto developers who provide those different user experiences to say, okay, let's make that API respond to decisions made by a user. In an interface, and so that's where you see the rise of tools. Originally, MuleSoft, Dell, Boomi, those some of the early big ones, but now it's really Zapier is what people think about. 
this incredibly well-documented, well-supported, slick UI that lets you uh, mix and match like Lego blocks, different data points and information from different systems, and to do it without ever needing to touch a line of code. So there's a sort of a, an irony here where the more the software provides those integration experiences that a non-developer uh, can do on their own, the harder the technical challenge is for the people who enable that citizen integrator. And so when I say left hook is a niche inside a niche inside a niche, we are, I think, one of, if not the top expert in how to build those integration experiences so that other people don't need developers. So we're developers who whose primary job it is to make it so that other people don't need developers. So it's very meta. Probably you want to unpack that. Nice. No, I love that. And um, it's interesting. And I, I see, you know, I mean, like Zapier is a great example, but I think you're seeing more and more companies roll these integrations out. I'm a big process street um, user, and they recently just rolled out their own automations, which, um, you know, it's all stuff that could have been done through Zapier. But even then, again, with that, it's like Zapier is a skill that, you know, the citizen developer person has to learn as well. And so there, it's almost like the, the it's like a constant race to try to remove the barriers. And so you guys are, it sounds like you guys are enabling that in a sense. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a bunch of really interesting stuff coming out. HubSpot, for example, has its own workflow automation engine that looks a lot like Zapier, where you don't have to leave the native product to uh, mix and match and bring data in and out. That's a huge strategic priority for HubSpot, who we do a lot of work for. But when you look at the App Store marketplace strategy that many of the larger cloud companies are now rolling out, where they want to be a platform and, and allow you to build to them and put your integration in that App Store, maybe to monetize it, but certainly to promote it. That's the world that we really live in. Where we're, we're helping the ISV that has a great API, has a partnership manager, really wants to be distributed everywhere. They have an API that they want to see consumed and distributed by non-developers everywhere. So it makes a lot of sense for them to put an app in this store, that store, the app exchange, the Zendesk exchange, put a platform, a connector on this platform. But it turns out that the knowledge, the skill and the knowledge to, to do each one of those individual marketplaces is uh, unique and complex to that specific marketplace. Like learning how to be a developer for the HubSpot App Store has similarity to being a developer for Zapier or a developer on the Zendesk Store or a developer on the Procore Store. There's a lot of overlap, but there's a lot that doesn't overlap. And so a couple of things fall out of that pretty obviously. If you're a product leader or engineering manager at a SaaS company and you have to build all these apps into all these different app stores because that's part of your strategy, what a headache. What 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 uh, sort of brain damage does it cause to expend your high expensive engineering resources to go learn all those weird permutations and who hosts and who doesn't and who has what rules and who accepts JavaScript and who does all that stuff to have them go learn and do that once and then it's done. There's really no value in learning it other than once the project's done. It's the imminently outsourceable development task because instead if you've got a shop like ours where we literally get paid and we're incentivized to understand these problems and understand the, the peculiarities of this platform this versus that platform, we resell that knowledge again and again and again. We're very incentivized to understand what's going on in all these different app marketplaces. Um, so it's, it's sort of very obviously something that people think to outsource. Then you get into a whole bunch of questions about who owns it, who owns the code, how much am I going to pay ongoing, and it becomes – 
sort of a math equation for the smart uh, leader inside of SaaS, all of which are answers, questions that we're doing, I think, a good job of answering. But at the, at the, at the top of the list, it's if I don't have to build these in-house, I probably should. That's incredible. And it's an amazing niche that I think you, you guys have landed in there because like you said, it is, it makes sense to outsource. It is um, not something that you really want core team members doing. Um, and it's also like, it's just, it's an interesting angle because you're adding capability, but it's also like a growth channel as well. Um, that I know that, I mean, a lot of people are like focus on if you can get your thing to like a top, you know, one of these app stores, like that's a growth channel for you as well. If you're a top Salesforce app or something like that. Um, and so it seems like you guys are close to the money. You're uh, very difficult to, to replace internally. It seems like there's a lot of great things about the model you guys have going here. In some ways, in some ways. So to date, we've been primarily a consultancy getting paid for our labor, which is not a terribly easy thing to raise money around or, uh, you know, it's, it's generally a harder business to run. Easy, easy business to start, hard business to run. Something that we, from our very early days, knew that we'd want to escape or sort of evolve out of and become more of a, of a SaaS model or technology model, which is just starting to happen for us, thankfully, after many years of learning, 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 and perfecting skills. So the model that we're pursuing that eventually we will, I think, do very well uh, and be potentially investable is when we can provide services uh, on a subscription basis that wrap around this experience of being a partner manager wrap around this experience of being uh, responsible for choosing, building, managing, and improving technology partnerships. Each one of those verbs uh, is painful right now. It's very bespoke, very manual. And that's why you know you see a hesitancy at times in the SaaS world to pay for partnerships or pay for tech. tech. You know, everybody has, a, the word partnership has a broad definition. I'm, I'm really talking about technology partnerships uh, where if you don't have technology, there's no partnership. I'm not talking about standard co-marketing, co-selling channel stuff. I'm talking about, hey, we have an integration. Now let's do something together around it. That's a hard problem. It's a hard thing to solve. And I would say, based on my experience, more promising partnerships don't happen than do happen. And the primary reason is there's not an internal resource to build it. That's uh, that's usually what seems to get in the way. Our, our, our competition... If we have competition, it's just not doing it, you know, in the end, deciding not to do it at all. Yeah. And I'm curious that you're, you're kind of alluding to this a bit here on the, the kind of, I guess, tech focus and where you guys are going. But um, what is the vision for what you guys are, are aiming to build in the tech space? Is this like a central portal to manage all of your technical partnership integrations or what does that look like? Well, so we're about to become public uh, with the sort of the first step towards this platform approach that eventually we'll, we'll get to. We had been working for the last year to take all of our knowledge and experience around direct and native integration building at scale and to turn that into a software product, which has finally happened. We call it Frigg, F-R-I-G-G. Uh, we've just just this week uh, kind of come out of hiding with it. Um, our friends at uh, Crossbeam, which is a software partnership software company that many people know, Crossbeam actually is using Frigg to power some of its direct integrations that have just been released as part of its technology partnership or partner cloud. And so they've been very kind and, and they've actually blogged about Frig. So it's now out in the open as a sort of a public topic as, as of this week. But Frig is a software framework that we have built. And, you know, for people listening to this podcast who aren't 
super into software and really nerd out on open source or all the different permutations of software, there's a difference between when a developer uses the word framework versus library versus platform. And it's very important that we are a framework. A framework is a ready-to-go, off-the-shelf chunk of software that can also be customized. So it's an opinionated is a word that's used. My partner, Sean, uses that word. We've, we've chosen a technology path, a stack, a point of view about how to do direct and native integrations and put a chunk of code uh, available to be installed on whatever infrastructure makes sense for your company that starts you the way I describe it is it starts you on the 50 yard line or further. It doesn't in and of itself, boom, it's not install and you know, one, one click install and you have integrations, but it closes the gap or it greatly ex- it extends how, where you start from when you start the project, you start thinking about adding a new partnership to your mix. Uh, so it's a, a bunch of code that, that gets you further that then left hook can come in behind and with professional services, get you all the way to the goal. That's incredible. And so I'm curious from you, from like a business standpoint, is this something where you put this out in the world, kind of almost like, I guess, the free open source kind of approach with the goal that, uh, you know, A, it helps advance the industry. It kind of you know, puts you guys as leaders, but also kind of attracts business. Or how, how do you think about that? So we have a vision of the products that wrap around the partnership manager experience that's bigger than this thing called Frig that we've just released. But for us to get to that vision, for you know, the bun- bunch of valuable things that happen if Frig becomes widely adopted. Uh, first of all, there's tremendous competition right now in the space. There's a bunch of players sort of known generally as white label or embedded iPads. Uh, the most prominent names, Workato and Trey.io. These are companies that have a SaaS version or a, a SaaS business model to providing direct integrations to to, um, to ISVs. And there's a bunch about their model and their technology approach that we know from talking to hundreds of CTOs are somewhere between concerning and drop dead no way. And our model, the Frig model, the framework model, uh, kind of goes head to head with that and beats it because for one thing, you're not in this Roach Motel SaaS model. One of the one of the really interesting things I've learned over the years working on this integration stuff is that no one hates SaaS more than SaaS leaders, <laughs> particularly product and technology leaders. If they can buy a technology that's becomes part of their overall offering to their end users, not in a SaaS model, they'd much prefer that because they understand the uh, the margin, the markup rates, and the inflexibility that that sometimes brings. So we find a lot of resistance to this embedded iPads competitor set. So the sooner we can put a alternative version and vision for powering these integrations onto the marketplace, well, a bunch of good things happen for us. I mean, obviously, uh, the more public it is, the more professional services we'll end up selling. But that's a short-term goal. The midterm goal is to have people understand the approach and all the value that we can unlock by building on top of and around Frig to do things like help people choose the technology partnership that makes sense for them, help them design it in a graphical interface without having to touch a line of code. Not necessarily something that's immediately deployable, but something that's good enough to send to your boss, your CEO, and say, hey, boss, if I work with Left Hook, I could have this HubSpot Marketplace app for our co- company published 
sometime in the next two weeks, look, I've already designed 80% of it. Here's a link. Go look at it, right? So uh, we think about the design side. We think about the code that needs to be generated. So we really can't do the development of these apps in a SaaS model because so often the code that gets deployed ends up on another platform or has technology architectural reasons why it can't just be hosted. It's got to be individual to the to the target market or the target partner. But we sure can generate that. We can automate it. Right now it's a often a you know a several week bespoke developer heavy process. We've got a bunch of technology and thoughts about how to automate that so that perhaps you could get the time and the cost of development of one of these apps. Again, let's take, for example, the HubSpot Marketplace. Right now, if you start today talking to us about a HubSpot Marketplace integration for your SaaS, that could be a two to three month and twenty to forty thousand dollar problem. We should be able to take several zeros off of those uh, numbers. It, it, in theory, we could get it down to less than two weeks and less than five thousand dollars. That's with a lot of automation and investment, so it's not going to just happen. But there's here's the truth, Jake. All of this technology around integrations is rapidly becoming commoditized, and we see that every day. Uh, there are so many different competitors coming into the space that are starting to figure that out. And so we really would like to be one of the first and, and help uh, kind of create a standard for it. So all that – we have other products that we'll wrap around that I could talk about. But all that is why this frig, this first step, this first toe in the water from a technology perspective – we are going to make some moves in 2021 that uh, is geared towards getting that adopted as quickly as possible. One of, one of those moves is we're on the path to open sourcing the framework. There's a bunch of reasons to do that. We could go on and on about why open source software is so valuable and such an interesting model. But one of them is absolutely speed, right? I mean, if you take away all the licensing issues, make it standard, something that you know corporate attorneys understand, oh, yeah, it's the XYZ license, no problem go grab that thing and use it, we can get a lot of SaaS companies using Frig very quickly, we think, because it really solves a lot of hard problems. Nice. I love that. And that's it's so cool to hear just kind of how you're flipping the model on its head and taking a different approach. And I, I think it's just such a interesting angle. And I, you know, basically you're talking about, again, like all these other companies where they're just charging SaaS subscriptions for integrations, but it's like this painful thing. You don't own it. And you're like, if you build your integrations on somebody else, like you're just, you're locked in. Like it's hard to change that. And so it makes sense to kind of have ownership over that. I know like, you know, even uh, parallel when I'm like looking at, you know, invoicing billing software, you know, you've got the different models there. There's a lot of ones that just charge you a monthly fee for like your, your recurring billing solution. And you got ones that decide to charge a percentage of everything. And I was just like, hell no, like, hell no, I'm not doing a percentage. Like if I can instead pay a flat fee for something like this. Um, And and it's, I think that's always an interesting angle when you see someone that enters the market with not just a different solution, but a different business model and way to approach it. And and it sounds like from what I've heard from you previously, that's from just kind of market research, what you've heard from the industry or how did you guys come to this? Well, because of uh, the long history of doing consulting with all these different ISVs, we have had the, the opportunity, the pleasure of, of interviewing hundreds of different players in the SaaS ecosystem. We deal a lot with partnership managers. They're often the first person that reaches out to us. But here's the truth, and you know, I won't offend any partnership leader when I say this. It's the rare partner leader who does not have to internally sell whatever they need or whatever they want to grow their program 
to the CTO, a product manager, and eventually the CEO. You know, the partnership manager is not typically empowered with their own engineering team or with a lot of, um, you know, uh, just just go uh, get this done. Anything that touches product, obviously somebody in charge of product is going to want at least know what's being added to the product because this concept of technical debt, right? Any, any SaaS leader who's been around a while knows, uh, yes, SaaS has high margins, but if you're not careful, you can put to place technology that is incredibly painful and expensive to change over, improve, rip out, and replace. And so there's a real consciousness after 20 years of SaaS leaders making mistakes, real consciousness around like, well, what is this frig thing you're adding? How do I know that any of my developers even know how to do something with it? What if left hook goes away and we're left with this, you know, this thing that powers our integrations, but there's nobody around to help us? There's a bunch of really frankly, you know, really honest, smart questions the CTOs ask. And because we almost always end up talking to a CTO or engineering manager or product leader, the buck often stops with them. You know, if they don't want to see external parties in their code or even touching their product, it's obvious, you know, the door often closes for us. And that, that happens. That happens a lot. If you can prove to them that you're going to be a responsible steward, that you're thinking through problems for them, that they themselves haven't thought of, that you're building in languages and using technologies that someone could come in and step in and operate, even if left hook went away. That's one of the reasons why we've chosen, uh, not to get too technical, but we've chosen software languages and tools that are the most adopted, used in the world. Uh, Node.js built on JavaScript, or you know, leverage JavaScript is, is sort of the core technology. We've made that choice in part because we want people to be able to see the stuff that we're building and say to themselves, well, if they go away, I can still handle that, right? So if you if you built your SaaS on .NET 25 years ago and you've not updated it, and here comes Left Hook, and it's like, oh, we've got this incredible solution for you, but it's built on a you know, JavaScript-based, more modern language that no one on your team knows how to operate, might be a bad fit. You know, there might be some risk there. Some, some companies look at us and say, look, We'll do it. But we got to know that you're going to be there for us, and that comes down to SLAs and and you know explaining to them our long term commitment to being there for them. Others just say no, you know, because I'm not going to adopt anything that I can't myself fix, which is not an unreasonable point of view after being burned on different issues over the years. So ultimately, all of this stuff comes down to it's when you're talking about tech partnerships, it starts with tech, and you have to have. You have to be willing to uh, adopt a technology and put it into product, knowing that for the long term, you're going to own it. You break it, you buy it. Left Hook helps with that. You know, we're here with a lot of supports and more than happy to, to support you. But that's not good enough. You know, the smart CTO is thinking beyond that. So we're benefit, benefiting from having a lot of proposals be shot down by CTOs who are like, no, I don't, I don't want SaaS. I want something that I can fix myself. Nice. I love that. And so I guess one of the other questions I would have is how are you balancing the, the launch of this, um, you know, new project like Frig, everything along this with doing a consultancy while trying to kind of, uh, evolve to this next tier of model and everything, I guess, how do you think about balancing the, the challenge between the two of those? Well, it's hard and it's slow. So, uh, I'm a very impatient person. Uh, I'm almost 50. I've been impatient my whole life, but I'm getting more impatient the older I get. 
because I can start to see the day when I don't want to work anymore and, you know, uh, you know, play with my grandchildren and not worry about software. So, you know, I'm often the one sort of how do, how do we do three things at once? But the reality is without more resources, you have to get done what's, you know, largely what's right in front of you. So, you know, we have a, still have a fairly small team. Uh, we do think that there's going to be a moment sometime later in 2021 where we'll be very investable based on the strength of a bunch of stuff that we're both rolling out into the world around Frag and also uh, have plans for. Uh, the one, the good news is I have a partner who his, his product vision is, or his clarity, his ability to see ahead and understand the mix of business and technology that comes together for product. It's uh, it's, it's God's gift. It, it, it's, you know, I, it would take me decades to see what he sees in a week. He, he's just, Sean, Sean Matthews, my partner, is just incredibly adept in understanding where this space is going. So the good news is when we have the resources, we think we can build some really impressive stuff quickly. But it's, right now it's going slowly. We're focused on getting our framework out the door in, in the hands of as many different SaaS companies as can, uh, can manage to put it to use. This was a big week, actually. You're interviewing me at a time when I'm much more comfortable telling the world about Frigg. Uh, before Crossbeam announced this week that they were using Frig, we had kept it in kind of a quiet private beta. But uh, at this point, it's it's out in the world, and I'm I'm getting a lot of inquiries from people that are like, "Wait, what is this magical thing that Crossbeam is using?" So uh, it's it's kind of like a pegboard, you know. You just I don't remember gym, middle school gym class, you know, one peg at a time, pull yourself up uh, until we can raise uh, real money, and then maybe uh, I can have five people on five peg. Makes sense. And another question I'd like to ask is, you know, launching a framework is a pretty unique and interesting challenge. How are you guys going about approaching that? Or what, what are you doing to get this framework out into the world? Because that is a, a bit different than launching a new company or a venture or something like that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I was not ready from a market. You know, I, I am I am not a developer. My, my career has been in politics and marketing and, and communications. So there was a little discomfort for sure around seeing seeing our baby go out in a blog post to a huge audience this week. But the truth is that's often just the way things have to go. I mean, our, our friends at Crossbeam were ready. There's a great blog post that if anybody's interested in this space, just got published, I think, yesterday. Uh, we're, today is, what, Wednesday, uh, June 9th. So, uh, yeah, the 8th. It's a blog post about how, how they launched their tech partnership program. And it prominently uh, includes Frigg, because we were a prominent, important part of that launch. So uh, when I when I heard that they were going to do that, I said, "All right, well, I got I got to get ready. We got to we got to have Frig ready to have a lot of conversations with ISVs." The good news, bad news is that the sales cycle for the adoption of something as technical as Frig is months, not days. So uh, I might end up having ten conversations with partnership leaders or you know SaaS leaders interested in the approach. But until we can get their CTO on the phone and really let them vet and kick the tires and understand the, the potential technical debt and the um, alignment between our what we've built and their their tech stack, that's the devil's in the details that that slows our deals down. So the good news is that all those are going to take a little bit of time. So it's not like I had to go hire ten developers this week. Uh, but we're scaling up for sure. You know, there's 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 one thing I do know is that way that we're approaching this problem and the solution that we've brought to the table makes a lot of people shake their heads yes and go, yes, I've been waiting for that. I 
certainly don't like doing it myself and using my developers on it. I really don't want to go the SaaS route, the sort of the embedded white label routes. I've been waiting for this third way, this third option to come along. And I've actually spoken with a bunch of SaaS people this spring uh, as we started to quietly talk about this new approach. And several of them said to me, I've been waiting for this. I knew somebody was going to do this eventually. I'm so glad it's you guys because you clearly know what you're doing. And the professional services is a key part of this. You know, so many people in software want to build a piece of software, never talk to anybody, watch it run in the middle of the night and get rich. That's not really how it works. Even even the most <laughs> automated software. I mean, Google has hundreds of thousands of employees, right? Even the most automated software, the most self-serve, walk-up, no-touch software, it takes people. It just so happens in our case, it's very transparent, right? If you if you need an hour of development to achieve X, we're gonna we're gonna work on that and be very transparent about the fact that you need an hour of somebody's time. All software, in the end of the day, comes down to people doing good work. We're just very overt about it. It means that some people look at that and go, well, you're not really a software company. You're a, uh, you know, a consulting company. There's an element of truth of that, although we're really working hard to, to turn the corner on that, become a product company. But uh, there's also an element of don't fool yourself, man. Any good software company is offering professional services, whether people buy those hourly or it's wrapped in their subscription. At the end of the day, good people are, are, are serving you professionally. So we're just very lucky to have a team that's very good at delivering those services and uh, hopefully can, can scale as, as Frig becomes more adopted. Yeah, that's awesome. One of the other points I want to hit on is uh, you said that you're not a developer and I actually kind of noticed that when I went through your LinkedIn, I was like, oh, wow, you're you come from like the sales and marketing side, but you you've got the talk like you uh, like you under, clearly understand this tech at a deep level and I'm curious maybe how from your career have you explored working so tightly in tech like in the very technical side of things um, without actually being a developer and like do you code at all like wh- where does that look at there so I'd like to thank my mom <laughs> who was a elementary school teacher we had a computer we had a Commodore 64 I think in 1980 when I was six or seven that computer was plugged into the internet or CompuServe by like 1982. I went to summer coding camps before anybody knew that was a thing. Programming Turtle, you know, and you have to be, I'm really dating myself. That's a programming language where you actually would build the turtle on the screen. So I've always I been interested. I, I, I did learn that one. So <laughs> oh, wow, you're an old man like me. Um, later, when I, my first job in high school was from this tiny little software company. It was in my tiny little hometown in Western New Hampshire, the last place you'd go looking for an innovative software company, but it just so happens there was one there. They were leveraging the internet to update prescription drug prices at, at different uh, pharmacies. So for those formative years, even though my mom was a teacher and my dad was a lawyer and I grew up on a farm and I had zero awareness of this thing called becoming a professional developer, even when I worked at a software company, it never occurred to me that that might be something I would be good at. I viewed myself as a humanities kid who was really good at English and, and talking and writing, uh, not math. You know, I never even made it to pre-calculus. So I never tracked in the computer science direction. Then I got to college and thought I'd be a history professor, which is what I studied in the long story there. But it wasn't really until I got to San Francisco right out of college where I had a great job working for uh, an environmental organization that then I was surrounded by technologists and I, I, I started to realize like, oh, 
I, I actually, funny story. I distinctly remember getting to San Francisco in the fall of 1996, right out of college, and literally asking somebody, so can somebody show me where Silicon Valley is? I don't really, there's no, to me, a valley has two sides. Like, where, where's the valley? <laughs> like, oh, well, it's everything south of here. And I remember arguing with them, being like, but there's only one side. That's not a valley. That's a plain, isn't it? Why is it Silicon Valley? I mean, I just I had no concept of it other than watching a view to a kill, you know, like James Bond taught me about Silicon Valley. But then I get out there, uh, you know, as a young 20 something and everybody around me that was an environmental, uh, you know, organizer was doing something interesting in tech. And that really caught my eye because I liked a lot of those people. I thought they were good people. They were idealistic as I was. They just were applying that idealism to other things. And so I kind of kept with that, even as I pursued, politics and communications and community organizing well into my thirties. And it was really, uh, you know, a complete, uh, how do you put it? It was just sort of a serendipitous accident. One day I ran into a friend of mine who I had been a teacher with who said, Tom, I started a software company. We're growing like crazy. Come help. Uh, come help me. I've always wanted to be in a business with you. You're a smart guy. You'll figure it out. Come help me. Now, honestly, I could not spell API. I, I was the last person you'd ever expect to be a software guy at that point. Um, but luckily he saw something in me and got me involved in a, in a company that was built on open source. It was a company called Joomla Shack that provided different tools and plugins around Joomla, just the way uh, Automatic now uh, does all this great stuff around WordPress. At one point, Joomla Shack had the chance to be the Automatic of Joomla. Uh, which was another content management system. And we went on to actually uh, build a SaaS company that I was a partner in, um, despite being very young and unaware of how all that worked, that ended up being something that could have been, with perhaps better product, the next Squarespace, sorry, uh, you know, or, or Wix, where the do-it-yourself website builders. And that was in Vermont, which is maybe even after New Hampshire, the least technology-oriented place you could imagine. So I just kind of got lucky and, and got exposed to all this stuff early on. Uh, and then uh, sometime around 2011, said, you know what? I seem to know more about this than a lot of people. I don't know nearly as much as people in Silicon Valley. But in my community here in New Hampshire, I got involved in an accelerator and started to help start found some companies and was helping founders with sales and marketing and communications. And I just said, you know what? First of all, I'm a terrible employee. Uh, I shouldn't work for anybody else. I'm, I'm really kind of meant to work for myself, number one. Number two, uh, and, th and that's that's heartfelt. Like, I feel sorry. To anybody listening to this for whom I used to work, I just want to apologize. I, I, I'm sure I was not nearly as good as an employee. I'm sure I never lived up to my potential. Um, but then I decided in 2012, uh, you know what, it's time for me to run my own thing. So I founded a little digital marketing firm, uh, which is what became Left Hook. But from day one, even with my original partner who's no longer with us, I always said, this to me is a way to learn an industry so well that we can turn it into SaaS. I want to I uh, get paid to learn something inside out so that we can then figure out how to automate it or turn it into SaaS. I'm not sure why I had that insight. I certainly understood the sort of the unit economics and long-term momentum of having a SaaS and having people pay you every month uh, under that subscription model. I was totally persuaded that that was a good way to make money. 
But what that SAS was going to do, what space it was going to be in, I had no idea. So, you know, this little consultancy was chasing different companies, trying to learn in different verticals, events, social value stuff. Uh, you know, we, we had a lot of different clients where we tried to learn about this, we tried to learn about that. And the integration thing kind of came out of the blue as a necessity. Like all good startups, like all good solutions, there was a big need for figuring out how to move data in between two different companies. Uh, or sorry, between two different SaaS applications. And it was actually Sean who pioneered that whole practice, figured out the APIs, taught himself JavaScript, really figured out how to do all this stuff. I was running an events company, an events marketing company in parallel. And, you know, sort of the interesting moment when I needed to listen to one of my much younger colleagues, you know, I hired Sean right out of college and here's this guy off kind of doing integration stuff that I kind of knew what was going on, thought it was interesting, but I was too busy running a 15 person marketing company. And then one day he comes and knocks on my door and says, actually, we didn't have doors. It was more like knocked on my desk next to me and said, Hey, uh, I got this company called Citrix. It starts with a C. They'd really like me to build the Zapier app for them. Is that something we'd be interested in? Now, I'll tell you what. I, I'm not a geek, but when you hear the word Citrix and you think about the Super Bowl ads and the Fortune 1000 uh, revenue that they have, that certainly got my attention. I'm like, wait, what? Citrix? Citrix wants you to build something? You taught yourself JavaScript last year. Now they want you to build them a piece of software. Tell me more. And the two of us uh, went away on a little uh, retreat, went to a hotel out, out in the middle of nowhere. And I said, catch me up. Teach me everything about this integration thing that you've been doing. You know, And we, we were making money with it, so I had enough of a sense of it. But I didn't understand really what he was doing for these clients. He kind of was running with it on his own. And by the time he unpacked it all, by the end of the basically 24 hours we were away at this hotel, I was like, we got to stop doing marketing. we got to stop doing events. This is, this is the, where we need to go. We need to shut all that other stuff down and focus on this. So that's exactly what we did. That was October of 2015. And by January 1st, 2016, I had split the company in half, sent the marketing stuff and kind of gave it away. And we've been a focused on integrations ever since. So I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but those are some some anecdotes. No, that's how incredible, got it. man. That's uh, amazing to hear the whole the whole founder story and like journey there. That's super amazing and um, and cool to hear that. Well, as we're getting close to time, I want to ask one final question: Is if you could go back, say, ten years or so to your younger self, uh, what advice would you give your younger self on your entrepreneurial journey? Wow, definitely something I think about uh, as I talk to young entrepreneurs. We're we're purposely located in a college town where the University of New Hampshire is, is based. And part of that's just to be around young people and be influential on their, on their dreams and, and be helpful. So I do have this conversation from time to time. I guess the, the most important thing I can think about is if you are out there thinking about starting a business, thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, thinking about doing it your way, and you can do that without a whole lot of financial risk, you should probably listen to that sooner. You know, there's a, there's a saying in management that I also strongly believe in, that if, if you have an employee and in your gut, you know they're not working out, the number one best thing to do is to rip that Band-Aid off and to, to 
basically move on from them. Like don't it, you ask managers, what's your biggest regret? They'll say, you know, I let that person stay too long. I was too nice or I was too, I was too afraid to, to move them on. And I should have, uh, I should have, we should have parted ways a long time ago. Well, I have the same feeling about entrepreneurship. I think I've known since I was a little kid. Yeah. You're going to end up running your own thing. You're going to end up being the boss. You're going to end up putting all that responsibility on your shoulders, but also having that feeling of, uh, you know, you made it, you did it. Uh, I don't know if that's, that's ego or, you know, I mean, you can get into the psychology of the entrepreneur. Most of us are running away from something as much as we're running towards something, you know, what our dad's mom or dad's thought about us or, you know, things along the way that make you want to do it your way and not somebody else's way. But whatever, if you've got that in you, if you, if that's in your head, I would say service that as early in life as possible. Don't wait. I, I waited until my mid early to mid thirties to become an entrepreneur and have spent the last 10 years learning a lot of the hard lessons and, and uh, you know, le- just learning, learn, learning things you need to know. I, I think I probably should have started in my twenties. If I could, if I could do it all over again, I would go back and tell my 22 year old self, you've got no debt. You're not married. You've got very little to, to worry about. Start a business now and figure and just figure it out. Don't wait until you think you know everything you need to know. Because the truth is you never know everything you need to know. That's actually kind of the point of entrepreneurship. It's it's you know, swimming your way through the fog is is kind of the job. So might as well get started early. Awesome. I love it. Uh, well, Tom, thank you for taking the time to come on here. Um, so last thing for anybody who wants to go find out more about you or Left Hook or contact you guys online, uh, what's the best place to go? Yeah, lefthook.com. There's a you know easy way to chat or, or talk to us there. Also happy to connect with people via LinkedIn. I think I'm Tom Elliott, NH for New Hampshire. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, thank you for taking the time to come on here, Tom. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.